Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Play, practice, or train. Simple concepts we all understand, but what are their differences? And when should you be doing each one? On today's episode, we break that down. This idea is based on an article Gray wrote years ago that still rings true. First, we cover the basics, and Gray uses his kettlebell journey with Brett Jones as an example. We talk cartwheels, tennis, South American football drills, martial arts, and how this topic applies to youth sports. Gray and Lee also give us an idea of what play looks like at their house. For the pros, we get into coaching strategies, working around people's limitations, and small group fitness options. So let's get going with today's movement podcast, powered by FMS. So I think a lot of the audience hears us say movement quite frequently, obviously, and they may immediately jump to exercise. They may be thinking about, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifting, uh, dumbbell training, uh, jumping rope. And so they don't really know what your terminology is, like what that actually means for movement. And so I'd like for you to kind of elaborate what the difference is there and, you know, take it from there. Well, movement is the larger overruling word. And that's why we've always ascribed to that because there are many cultures that don't exercise at all that are unbelievably fit and functional. So it's really easy to get, let exercise rules govern our life instead of let the principles of movement govern our exercise. So what I always tell people to do, and I did this for myself, is I picked three words that all talk about activity or could easily align with exercise, but in three completely different ways with three completely different goals, play, practice, and train. Now, if we think about why children and young animals play, they're working out their falls and their wobbles and their running and their turning and stuff like that. And play is simply a biological opportunity to get to know yourself and your environment. Practice means I found that thing I want to do. When, when Zena saw her older sister do their first cartwheel, there was like six weeks of our life where cartwheels occurred in every room of our house, no matter how small it was, in the backyard, down the sidewalk. And that was Zena. She had played with a lot of moves. She decided to latch onto the cartwheel. And before you knew it, she couldn't cross a room without being three cartwheels left and right side. She was practicing. She had a precision. She had a template. Training is when you're already good enough, and then you seek opportunities to demonstrate consistency and volume. So too many people see a kettlebell on Thursday, and they're training with a kettlebell on Saturday. You need to play with it for a while and figure out what you can and can't do. And a good coach will help you with that. And then you need to practice the level of precision until somebody other than you in the mirror gives yourself a thumbs up. Mm 
So I didn't do kettlebell swings till I was satisfied with my form. I did them till Brett Jones was satisfied with my form. And then I gave myself permission to train. So think about it. You never even get to volume and consistency until you've played with it and found the joy and attachment to the move that you want to do better. And then you tighten the guardrails, you ask for outside feedback, you get some criticism and you don't whine or cry. Well, Gray, how do you get, describe then how you practice at a higher level. Because to, to a lot of people, you're going to train so you can practice. So you're training in a way that would help build up your tolerance, build up your resiliency, so you can go practice at a higher level, right? I, I love that. I love what you said because too many people, Greg so, Rose. Oh, say that again. Lee, I love that you said that. Was that a warm fuzzy for you there? I like that. Okay, good. And he's going to pat himself on the back and probably knock his mic off. I'm, I'm done yeah. for a while. Oh, no. I know you are. It's I, like just stanza. Yep. Thanks for bringing the ball down the court. We'll take it from here. <laughs> I'm done. No, you make a good point. And, and that goes back to batting practice or Greg Rose talking about golf balls. If all you can do is hit a small bucket of balls, I agree. You can't ever get better at golf because you don't have the physical capacity to support it. So let's say you're already generally fit, but you're learning something new. Okay. What I, what I think is so cool about practice is the first time me and Brett Jones went deep into sort of dissecting my own deadlift. He basically made me reach down and grab the bar seven or eight times before I ever got to stand up with it. I, two years later, I did the exact same thing on stage with a guy in a kettlebell and a performance thing, demonstrating that if you coil the spring right, the deadlift happens automatically. Now, the funny thing was, Lee, in the entire 35 minutes me and Brett were working on my deadlift, I probably only pulled about 12 deadlifts and there was a long rest break in between. I was done. It was a huge training effect for me. But it wasn't deadlifting. It was getting into deadlift positions. And so when you do practice with a good coach who knows what you're doing, battling ropes, Indian clubs, rock climbing, it doesn't matter. If you're practicing the technical stuff, you're going to have a physical training effect. But if you're just going for a physical training effect, you probably won't get the precision. So I think that once you've played with it and just know, I got about 15 minutes of endurance doing this, let's spend that 15 minutes on feedback and precision and technique, and then see if we can grow it to a half hour. So I agree with you. You do have to have a minimum level of conditioning to approach any physical skill. But if you're, if you're, you know, can, can jog or walk or do jumping jacks or something like that, then probably use the practice to create a training effect instead of thinking training will make you better at precision. But what training really is though, is basically taking the skill or whatever you're trying to achieve, regressing trying to find where is that place that you can, as you said, you went had to actually get down into the deadlift position, make sure you had that right, and you did that over and over in order to get it correctly, in order to do it right. So training is really trying to build up to that point, right? Well, no, well, that, that's, where I, that's where I think that training can almost get spread out too thin as a word. I would like to say that you shouldn't train anything that you can't already do at a, at a technical minimum, but doing all the things that get you to the technical minimum do have a training effect. But I think of training as showing up at basketball practice, like John Wooden used to do running from skill drill to skill drill, not fatiguing 
while you're doing your thing. Now we're changing volume. We're changing uh, intensity. We're changing tempo. Sometimes we even change the gym and change the role from offense to defense. We just want to know if you can hold up, but all the skills are at least there. And if we get the skills up and then we run a game type situation or drills and we start to see you decline, that's where we know, all right, we need a bigger gas tank. But I think too many people get consumed with all the training metrics on an activity they're not even doing good enough for me to say, ooh, you, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where bad form should not be repeated and definitely not repeated for a conditioning effect because you're going to lock in a pattern you'll never get rid of. Well, give me an example of that. I mean, you talk about the kettlebell swing being something that's pretty popular right now. So if somebody goes and picks a kettlebell, kettlebell up, the first thing you're going to try to do is a swing and they're going to do it poorly. Uh, I could I could take it almost anywhere. I could take it to a kettlebell swing. I could take it to play in tennis. If you're holding the racket wrong, a half hour of tennis is a half hour of training activity by most metabolic standards. It ruins your tennis game. If you don't know the five technical things that every good swing should have, both on the first and last rep, I think you're just moving a weight around to get tired instead of trying to come back better tomorrow. And one of the things Ed Thomas told me when me and you and Brett were working with him on Indian clubs is in, in the days at, you know, 1900 to 1915, when those Turner style gyms were still there, we saw a lot of the equipment we currently see in modern functional fitness facilities, but you never showed up to get tired or do a workout. You showed up to practice the pommel horse, the rings, the weighted wand, the rope ladder. You showed up to do a skill the workout was the was a a side effect. Not you didn't go to hit one forty five on but, your heart rate. Right. So in that example, you show up to the gym back then, back in nineteen ten. Wouldn't that be considered play as well? Until the coach started stepping on the mat and saying, "Now change your foot position and hip hinge here," it is play. And, and, and that's where I think we, we often make a mistake. When Danielle and I were teaching gym class the last three years, we let kids play on a balance beam for the first 10 minutes of class and don't give them any instruction at all. And then they all self-gaged at their own rate. And, and I hate to say this, Lee, but the FMS and a lot of the tests we do actually um, fit in the purpose of play because if play helps you figure yourself out and figure out your limits in your environment and you don't know what those are, the movement screen helps you with that. When we find your weakest link in movement and then give you something like, hey, I know you got a bad hip hinge. Won't you try the happy baby? But what, play with that. But, well, but wouldn't you say for most for the average person out there, if they just went out and played more often, that's all they need to do. They do. And when they get to that point in play where they wish they could be better at something or get a little frustrated, that's where you seek practice, not training. You want outside feedback from somebody who can give you one technical cue. They rotate that racket in your hand a quarter and all of a sudden well, everyone that's, in your shot. Well, shots that, is good. That's, that goes back to the, the, human, the human element. Because as soon as you go out and you play, you're going to find something, just like you said with your daughter, Zena, you're going to find something you really like. And then you're going to do that too much. And then what happens? You start doing it too much. Your form breaks down. You screw up. You get injured, whatever. That's the problem. And what I would say that mistake is, is going from play to training without adequate practice. And I think the, the coaches today that, that do coach a skill, 
You know, you talk about somebody who understands kettlebells at the next level or yoga at the next level or maybe pose running or something like that. They have this thing they're they're going to drop on you, but they definitely want you to have some time in the arena first, as opposed to somebody walking out in the first half hour of your kettlebell session is how to hold a kettlebell. That's a sign of a good coach is, is letting you have, letting you explore and go Exactly, is, exactly. Is the good coach the one that's able to kind of, you know, wrap up the practice as play. Exactly. Exactly. Because there are a few places or what we do is then compress a drill. All right. When we look at the way a lot of South American soccer develops, they play the big game and then they play a thing called the small game. And that's two on two in a small room. And when you come face to face on a big field and you have those agility moves, they are very much compressed in indoor soccer or small rooms. So the minute we find that thing that you struggle with, we compress that drill down to the few things you can manage. And, and we, we go deep. And, and when Brett Jones and I dissected the Turkish getup, Pavel said, you guys went an inch wide and a mile deep. And I'm like, well, somebody had to, so we'll know where this thing came from. And, and it was a compliment. It's like every now and then we got to stop playing with this and go deep and say, here's where those wrinkles are. But then once you come out the other side, everything looks better. That's when you can start looking at your heart rate monitor. Um, when it comes to, you know, youth and, and their ability to play and, and practice, do you think they might be training too much? I think the coaches are pushing them in that direction. You know, when, when, when people are dropping eight and 10 and 12 year olds off at a gym for a coach to teach them how to run faster, I just find a friend that outran them and say, see if you can catch them. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, I guess, I guess, you know, it is a sign of the times, but I I do love the coach. I watched uh, Dan and Asanto as, as an invitation for him and Mark Chang to watch him working with some kids. And there were a bunch of kids and they were doing some moves in martial arts. And I'm, I'm so inadequate talking about the different forms they were doing. I won't even say they were, they were on the ground, they were getting up and there was just a disconnect. There was a lot of people talking and stuff like that. And this masterful coach, and this is, this is Bruce Lee's number one student. Um, and, and you can Google Dan Asanto because he's, a, he's an amazing human. He went over to a snare drum, grabbed two drumsticks and went boom, boom, boom boom. And every step and every move got in sync. And without saying a word, about 26 people were moving as if they'd been dancing together in a company for months. And all he did was reset the rhythm of the room. We're talking about things that should be expressed through action. So let's do a little more action. But it's those kind of moments. It's like when, when Lee and I see somebody on a balance beam and they're holding their breath and we give them permission to breathe and they make it to the end of the balance beam without a fall. It's, it's playing with these things and not giving these precision instructions, but these, hey, let go of that. Hey, try this. That's not practice yet. That's well, but, just, but going back to what Ash you know, talked about where I was asking is the kids just aren't playing enough. No. They are, they are going right from, you know, they're going right into a sport. So four or five years old, I mean, now four or five-year-olds are playing, you know, midget league soccer, you know, getting into t-ball. They're playing a sport before they've even had a chance to play. And then before you know, by the time they're five and six years old, they're a baseball player. And I think that's part of the issue is, there is they're not giving that chance to play. Well, and, and I guess, I guess I, I skipped over the whole part, but, but there is a way to organize play without making it boring. And what Dan did is added rhythm and beat and it and became a dance, not an exercise anymore. So there are things we can do to, to 
pull people in. I tell you what, when, when we go to the uh, FCS workshops and I got somebody who can't do a standing long jump and they think I'm going to coach them on jumping and we get the uh, um, battling rope and we do a, a tsunami wave, a rope wave that's two hands, just slam it on the ground and send a wave down to somebody else. They send it back. And we do about six of those and I'm coaching somebody up saying, come on, ah, and breathe. And, and we do this thing. The person comes back and has a personal best and they're standing long jump. And they're like, oh, wait, I'm messed up. We were doing battling ropes. My jump just got better. And I'm like, well, if you look at what you did to do that jump, you went through every mechanic except your feet leaving the floor. So we played with the rope, got rid of a lot of parking brakes in your body. You come back you're out of your head, you actually jump further. And so it's playing. I, I will always go from something somebody's getting too technical on, make them play with something else that's the same movement pattern, but they're not thinking about it. Bring them right back right. over. Whether it's kids or adults, you almost, at this, unfortunately, right now in society, you've got to get permission to play. Yeah, you yep. do. And you then do. sometimes even the parents do. You know, in these gymnastics gyms, uh, there's a couple around here there were parents who were pulling their children from the program because it wasn't organized enough for them where, you know, someone that watches movement understands they're just letting the kids play and under like awareness that we always talk about. And they're like, well, no, they're not learning how to do exercise, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, they're learning how to use their bodies for the first time. And that's what the program should be about. But these parents think that it should be training, training, training all the time. Well, it's like this. If, if, if we're onboarding levels of physical competency, you can't speed it up. Um, I hate to say it, but people learn at the rate they want to learn. There are things good coaches and teachers can do to set up a lesson plan and an environment in chunks. Number one, chunk the movement, give them a rest break. Chunk the movement, give them a rest break. But the funny thing is the parents complaining. It's like, I think the parents and kids went into it with different goals. Because if the goal is to develop physical self-awareness, movement competency, and, and just grace and poise in your active daily life, then probably got that. If, if it's an Olympic gold medal, yeah, we're probably behind. But I honestly think we'd already know if you had a gold medalist or not. Okay. So I don't think the kids were complaining. I think the parents didn't think, what's the value? I, I, if I don't have a medal, then what did I spend all this money on? And I said, you spent your money on a way to let your kid get physically involved since you don't live on a farm or go play on an obstacle yeah. course together. So, so let it be what it is. But that is also not me endorsing somebody who's just getting off easy by letting kids play and not turning it into a physical lesson every time. So there is a way to make sure you play. You do have a level of instruction and precision, but it's not overdone. Both of those together yield a training effect that never made you look at your Fitbit. Mm -hmm. So it should be something that seems kind of seamless. It should be. And, and, and I've tried to bring that into my own teaching and, and I've practiced it teaching in a nonverbal way. And whether I'm doing the little half foam roll balance flows that I've done with kindergartners, I did it in Beijing with a language barrier and I've done it at perform better with three and 400 people. And there's something about getting people to flow together that just says, wow, I'm more flexible, but that didn't feel like stretching. I'm more balanced, but that didn't feel like engage my glutes. You know, they just, I think I'm standing up straighter, but nobody mentioned my posture. And I'm like, that's the point that, that is the point that, that your physical awareness can be gauged simply by experience, not just information. 
So Gray, uh, I understand that when it comes to your kids, especially, you're really into the whole play mindset. So what exactly does the cook house backyard kind of look like? And you walk through the kitchen, you go out the back door, take a left. Uh, first thing you cross is a uh, grass volleyball court. The net's down right now because my volleyball player isn't home right now. There's a gentle sloping hill that we do a lot of rolling and stretching and squats on and stuff like that. You go through what's fenced in right now because we got the dog back there, but we got an in-ground trampoline. We we were the family on the block that had the above-ground trampoline, but um, I never I never thought the net was that important. They'll they'll learn pretty quick not to fall off that thing. But anyway, it's in-ground now. You go on through, and uh, the playground is actually a bunch of four by four posts uh, with uh, monkey bars and like a a ninja warrior, different things to hang on. You go down a set of steps and you've got the weight rack, the kettlebell rack, and uh, there's also a zip line that I'm pretty sure wouldn't pass safety standards, but the hardware store happened to have some equipment one day. So I was going to say, is this all gray cook design? Pretty much. It's, it's whatever tractor the supply. The question is, did Greg Cook actually do it or did he have uh, someone else come in and I know, fabricate Who does the hole that the trampoline then went in? It I wasn't Gray. I can guarantee you that. That's the only thing I kept thinking. I pointed at where the hole should be <laughs> and uh, a bunch of really smart people worked the rest of it, rest of it out from there. But, but it is, it's, it's, it's a cool place. Uh, you know, um, when Danielle and I were getting ready way back in the day for, for kettlebells and stuff, we trained back there and it's just sort of, it's, it's a place to, to play, but every Every evening, Zena's on the trampoline and she's gotten so good with flips and turns that her older sister and I actually throw a Frisbee at her back and forth trying to hit her. And she's using ninja moves not to get hit. And she just spontaneously said, you know, it, she was so good at catching it. She said, all right, now see if you can not hit me. And so we're actually whipping the Frisbee trying to get her. And uh, does that mean she's that good or you just that poor at throwing? I think both are, are fair statements. <laughs> <laughs> I've designed an amazing child and I'm not a Frisbee golf expert. <laughs> no. That's actually a great example of a, of a, a play. I mean, everybody thought of trampolines being a, a form of play in their backyard. That's now an Olympic sport. It, it is. And, and, you know, I was, I was telling Zena when her older sister was down at university of Miami for a visit, I'm like, do you realize that divers train on a trampoline as much in the pool? And because Zena's both her sisters are very, very tall, we knew her gymnastics career would probably be short simply because some biomechanical things, but, you know, diving and trampoline and stuff. She just likes, she likes being upside down, inverted cartwheels a lot. Like I said, even though she can do cartwheels really good right now, that's how she gets through her house. So, you know, if you're carrying stuff, there's going to be a heel coming by right now. Um, so a lot of guests and pets and stuff like that have gotten in the way of the cartwheel um, perfection. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Any damaged furniture, I'm sure, as well? More broken stuff in the kitchen. They, the cartwheels don't stop at the kitchen. We got a stove over here and a knife over there, but the cartwheels don't stop. So, What does play look like at the Burton house? Get outside. <laughs> Just make it simple. Kick them out. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to do much. I mean, I don't, you don't have to. I mean, let the kids be creative. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I grew up, I didn't have a trampoline. I didn't have uh, a zip line. Now, my kids have a zip line. They've got the monkey bars and stuff. But as long as they're not in the house on their iPads and, and looking at the, you know, screen, let them get outside and uh, they'll figure it out on their own as long as they're not inside. Yep. Come home at dark. That's yep. what my parents used to tell us. 
All right, we'll take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to discuss coaching strategies, workout alternatives, and how this can apply to group fitness. The FCS course is designed for professionals ready to break down barriers and catapult active individuals to achieve performance goals. The FCS gives pros the tool to accurately measure benchmarks essential to progress from functional movement to functional performance. FCS is a highly interactive certification course that explores the dynamics of how individuals control their body, display explosive power, utilize energy storing, and maintain integrity under heavy loads to best develop sustainable performance. FCS is a physical, fast-paced course that builds on your FMS1 screening. You will perform FCS tests with your peers and engage in lecture and breakout sessions with your instructors. Are you ready to discover the key elements of performance testing to unlock an active individual's full potential? Take a look at our upcoming courses and get started today. So tell me this idea of play, practice, and train. A big problem, Gray, when people go out and try to do that is they don't have the capability to do some of the stuff they want to do, meaning they may have a lack of range of motion. They may not have the right amount of strength or capacity or whatever it is, but they're out there trying to do whatever exercise it is, whether it's a kettlebell swing or whether it's a, a deadlift, but you know what? They don't have the hip mobility to do it. Or even worse, they have an underlying injury that they don't know they have. You know, I sprained my ankle 15 years ago. I got a lack of ankle mobility right now. I, you know, sit at the desk all day and my back hurts a little bit, but yet they go out and try to pick up that kettlebell and do those things. So I think part of what we have to do as professionals is identify those limitations before we just stick them in a play, practice, or train situation. You're absolutely right. And philosophically speaking, I sort of went on that little riff of play, practice, train in philosophical categories. But practically, <laughs> Gray went on a philosophical riff. <laughs> yes, I did. But professionally speaking, the the test and screens and assessments we do basically accelerate your play so we can take you to that area. So you said ankle mobility or shoulder strength or something like that. But instead of talking to you about that, I put you in a situation that you can manage, but right. only if you really but What struggle. you just said, when you say talk, really what you're saying is coaching. You can't coach them through that. No. And I, in, in telling you your FMS score doesn't do either of us any good because the entire seven movement patterns still had a weakest link. I'm not talking about anything but that, and I'm not even talking about that. We're actually going to get in a position and see if your left and right ankle mobility feel the same here because we get through that screen so quick, unless you're in the profession, you don't know what we're looking at. But when we get on the other side of that, I only want you to know we got to work on one thing. And there's only one domino to push to knock them all down. Every other domino doesn't knock them all down. And that's what we've been obsessing on for 20 years. If we can get that little first domino, you actually look back at us and go, I see what you're saying now. And that's more of a goal for me than making you memorize what I told you about the movement screen. So we accelerate the play, we find the struggle, and then we give you permission to wobble, laugh, and experiment. And it's about the most cathartic five minutes you could have because I've seen a lot of people let go of a lot of unnecessary tension. Now we can get into this thing and work through it, but it's giving them time to feel what you already know is five minutes that you can, that you could never overinvest. It right. Just, and the assumption is when you, we, we say someone who has a limited ankle mobility that we've got to take away or avoid certain activities. 
most situations, that's only a limited amount of time, and they can still go out and play or practice or train. We're just going to alter what they're doing. I had this conversation with a coach this morning. If I don't take away the activity that I know your ankle mobility is interfering with, your brain is so freaking good, it's actually going to use the stiffness as an advantage and you'll never let go of it. So as long as I keep giving you permission to bounce off a stiff ankle instead of push off a strong ankle, and those are two complete, a strong ankle can squat all the way down. A stiff ankle can't, but they can both run. One of those runs is not as physiologically sound, efficient, or effective as the other. Which is what what that's going to lead to is a problem somewhere else in the body. It is. And so the ankle caused it, but now that your back blew out and your foot's numb, you're going to meet a surgeon. And four years ago, all you needed was a better movement screen. But but nobody ever connects those two dots. And you and I practicing together for 20 years in a PT clinic, we start hearing these stories unfold. I had this problem four years ago, and then my back blew up, you know? And it doesn't mean, you know, we're talking about ankle mobility as the example. You should be good enough, I know you think you are, to identify other areas, other things that they can still train or practice or play in. If my ankle screwed up, doesn't mean I can't do something in the upper body. No, no. I've, I've had a lot of, lot of people who, who were addicted to cardio and they just couldn't get off the treadmill, get off the bike, get off anything. And they're like, I got to get my heart rate up. It is my one. And I'm like, I tell you what, put this little weight belt around your waist and go tread water in a pool. And when you feel like you're going to drown, drop the weight belt and keep going. You'll have about 20 minutes of the most amazing cardio with no biomechanical stress whatsoever. Permission to play. So really, if you're if you're a good professional, you've got to be creative enough to figure that out. And I think if you don't feel like you've got the confidence, then go ahead and that's where that's where education comes in. And you know what? Uh, I, I need to say this because I think we're all a victim of this. Do not dare as a professional use your creativity first for exercise entertainment. You use your creativity to make a change. We are not here to entertain you. That's a very you. important concept, Greg, because especially now in the world we're in. Everyone is searching for a different idea, a different thing. And sometimes their different ideas or different things are just for entertainment purposes. Not everybody needs the different idea or different thing. No, you're, you're right. And we use the music. We use the loud voices. We use the pyrotechnics associated with the workouts to distract us. But I had a great experience at Stanford. We were, we were out there doing a little thing. Stu McGill and I were going to do a little debate on stage. But we got to tour the football facility the day before. We got to see a cycle of guys come in, partner up and weight train. There was no music. There was a warm up that was done and, a, and sort of they were, they were doing stretches on each other. They went right into the workout. They knew how to spot each other. There was this elegant, nonverbal communication and they weren't distracted from their activity. They were invested. I could have yelled in that room and three or four people would have never heard me because they were so into either spotting their partner or doing the move. And I looked at the coach and I'm like, this is, this is amazing. So this was is that, that practice or training? I think that was actually training because most of those guys were well-practiced. I didn't see any bad precision in what they were doing. So now they're holding a level of integrity across a 30-minute training session with no decline whatsoever. That means 100% of that stress went to the right pattern, not the wrong pattern. Do we think most... Let's, group exercise, boutique fitness, all of those things are so popular. Do you think they need to just figure out how to, how to be practice oriented and 
almost not even be the training portion because so many of their athletes aren't really ready for training. I think so. And I think if we pick moves and, and, and if I were, I've done group exercise a lot, but I'm not a group exercise instructor, but if I had a few balance beams in the room, we're all going across a balance beam. If you made it across, get on the left side. If you made it across, if you didn't get on the right side, everything we do left side, do this move right side. You got to do it in half kneeling. So we could be doing a kettlebell halo, but the group that doesn't have good balance is half kneeling. The group that has good balance gets to stand. But by the end of the session, they both got a good workout, but now everybody can cover the balance beam. And so I always platoon my problems. And so many people say, well, it's group exercise. We got to train together. I didn't say you couldn't. We're all in the same room. We're all watching the same instructor, but you guys do it in tall kneeling. You guys do it in half kneeling or you guys do it in sitting. And so there's a really easy way to drop the posture back for the people with poor balance. But it's the beautiful thing at the end when the majority of people cover the balance beam or are self-aware that they improved because the people who could already do it are surprised that all this fatigue and they can still balance. The people who couldn't do it said, I, I just got a workout, but now I can. Both people said, I move better now without ever saying a word. That's a real instructor. So I pick one little thing. The room is going to have good and bad in it, but you can sort of draw the line and say, no dishonor. Mm -hmm. Here's where I'm, here's where everybody's got the same kettlebell. Everybody's got the same move, but it, that's, that's the way I've, I've tried to do it. And picking moves that the instructor likes doing are not necessarily what the, what the crowd needs. And so what you often get, and, and, and we're all a victim of this, is you've got one move you can do and you're up on stage and you're just looking pretty and you're not watching anybody else, but you got to meet them where they are. So we also mentioned, we were talking about ankle injuries a little bit there for a moment. And for someone, I'm asking for a friend who has a bad ankle, um, say a recent sprain or something, would you recommend them training movements where they can hone in on the one good side. So let's say for instance, you know, someone that does a lot of cardio and they get on the rower and they put a skateboard on the left ankle and they continue rowing with the right leg and upper body. Is that something you would suggest or stay away from anything that's going to be too asymmetrical? You, you do always have the chance. Now in physical therapy, if you just had an ACL, we, we're going to be doing this for a while. So we're going to do some ways, do some things to keep the other leg active and, and stuff like that. But if it's just a temporary little one or two week thing, I usually tell people, Hey, Go study something or do something you've always wanted to do that's not going to create ankle stress. So cycling and deadlifting don't create near as much stress as squatting and running. So cycling and deadlifting actually don't have you moving your ankle nearly as much. Now, the ankle's still getting stressed through it, but usually that mid-range stress is not what hurts an ankle. It needs blood flow. Well, um, the, the, thing, the thing that most people do, and it sounds like the, the person you're describing is very typical, um, not in a bad way, but they, they blew out their ankle, but they still want to do cardio. Right. So I'm going to find a way to do the cardio. And really the cardio could be, instead of doing cardio, maybe they just do some upper body strength training. Right. <laughs> that's, right. that's a better option while that ankle is getting, is healing. Right. So it's just being a little bit more creative and, and changing up what you're doing and don't just think, well, what am I going to do for cardio now? Well, just do some weight training, do some upper body work for a week mm -hmm. or so. So an alternative, or like I said, here's where the, here's where the tread and water comes in handy. Well, tread and water is too easy. Not with a weight belt on, it's not. And as soon as you hit your limit, drop the belt, you got 10 more minutes. Of, so it's, it's going to be more than you think, but it's, it's the whole body thing. So you can, and you can, tr you can transition from, like Lee said, don't even get near the ankle 
to let's load the ankle, but not stress the ranges. Mm -hmm. And then let's get back into the ranges. That'll do it for this episode of the movement podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe, share, and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, remember to first move well, then move often.